This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Karen Keegan sat calmly in the waiting room, reading a novel. Her face looked serene as she turned the pages and adjusted her thick-framed glasses. No one but her oldest son could have guessed how she was feeling inside. He put his hand on her shoulder and squeezed it lightly. She was nervous. If she hadn't been clutching her book so tightly, her hands would have been shaking. It was ridiculous that tests like these took so long. She tried to focus on her book, but she couldn't read more than a few sentences at a time without getting distracted. At last, the door opened and the doctor called Karen inside. Her son rose to join her, but the doctor put his hand up. He needed to speak with Karen privately first. Karen nervously stood and followed the doctor into his office. She sat down on the crinkled paper lining the bed and waited for him to speak. He seemed unsure of where to begin. He told Karen her son wasn't a genetic match for her. He wouldn't be able to donate a kidney to save her life. Karen sighed. It was troubling news, but not unexpected. She tried to stay positive and thank the doctor for his directness. But there was more. According to a DNA test, Karen's son, whom she had carried for nine months and given birth to, wasn't biologically related to her. Karen was about to start laughing until she saw the doctor's face. He was deathly serious. He wanted to know whose child she had been raising as her own. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. 
At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the most unsettling stories we can find for the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Medical Mysteries, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on human chimerism, a condition in which a person possesses cells with more than one distinct genetic makeup. For example, a person with chimerism who presents as female on the outside may have a small number of biologically male cells with both X and Y chromosomes. This week, we'll go over several of the potential causes of chimerism in humans. We'll also examine a few unusual cases where the condition has profoundly impacted the lives of both chimeric individuals and their families. In 2002, 26-year-old Lydia Fairchild got some jaw-dropping news. She had recently applied for government assistance after separating from the father of her two children, Jamie Townsend. As a precondition for the support, she had to provide DNA evidence that she and Townsend were both related to the children. But when the medical office called and asked Lydia to come in to discuss the results of the DNA test, she was confused. She wondered why they couldn't just tell her over the phone. She was absolutely sure Jamie was the father after all. To her, the test was just a formality. The office insisted she come in person. Lydia started to worry something had gone wrong and drove to the appointment with a knot in her stomach. Unfortunately, she was right to be anxious. Two employees escorted Lydia to a back room and sat her down. For a moment, they said nothing, only staring at her intensely. Lydia squirmed involuntarily from the heat of their gazes. She didn't know what was going on, but it was clear something wasn't right. One of the employees said that they had determined there was a 99% likelihood that Jamie was the father of her children. Lydia smiled and breathed a sigh of relief, but the employee wasn't done. He told her there was a problem with the other test, the one she had taken. According to the results, she couldn't possibly be the mother of her children. A normal paternity test is expected to find that 50% of a child's DNA was inherited from each parent. In Lydia's case, it had found 0% of her DNA in the samples taken from her children. This meant that there was a one in a billion chance she could be their biological mother. Lydia was dumbfounded. She had carried both her children to term and then given birth. She was obviously their mother. The severity of her situation didn't sink in until after the employees proceeded to interrogate Lydia like she was a criminal. They asked her if her name truly was Lydia Fairchild and where she got her children from. 
just like that, Lydia was embroiled in a court case. At minimum, the accusations suggested she and Jamie Townsend were attempting to commit welfare fraud by claiming benefits for children that were not Lydia's. At worst, Lydia was accused of possibly abducting her children from their rightful mother. For his part, Jamie was as stunned as Lydia by the news. He had witnessed her giving birth to their children. All of a sudden, he was drilled by investigators demanding to know the supposed truth about his children's maternity. There was nothing he could do to convince them that Lydia was the mother. The specialists had performed three separate tests and the court considered the DNA evidence infallible. The state of Washington set to work building its case against Lydia, preparing to accuse her of welfare fraud. After interviewing her partner, Jamie Townsend, the prosecutor's theory was that Jamie may have had children with Lydia's sister and then passed them off as Lydia's so that she could qualify for public assistance. The date of her first hearing was set a few months after the results from the first tests were revealed. Lydia was terrified the prosecution planned to take her children away from her. She was afraid to answer the door or leave her kids alone for even a moment. To make matters worse, she was pregnant with her third child. She worried the case would rob her future newborn of their brothers. She even feared they might take her baby after she gave birth. Every time she dropped off her eldest son, aged five, at school, she worried it would be the last time she ever saw him. Desperate to prove they were her children, she put both of her kids through a rigorous series of blood tests. Unfortunately, each test showed the same result. Their genetic profiles did not match. The results seemed almost insurmountable. She needed someone to defend her in court, but after weeks of searching for a lawyer, none of them believed that she was the mother. Their rejection left Lydia fending for herself. After several more weeks of tense interviews and sleepless nights, the date of her first hearing came. Because it was a civil case, she didn't have the right to a court-appointed lawyer and had to attend without counsel. It was a tall order. Lydia wasn't a doctor, and she certainly was not a lawyer. She had no idea how to behave in court or respond to the prosecution. It didn't help that the prosecutor opened the hearing by recommending Lydia's children be placed in separate guardianships. Lydia's worst fears had been confirmed, and it only got worse from there. Next, the court called the specialists at the DNA lab to interpret the tests. They believed Lydia was lying and dismissed a few alternative explanations for the results. They suggested small amounts of different DNA could be present in Lydia's bloodstream if she had a blood transfusion or some kind of major surgery. But unfortunately, Lydia hadn't. With no other explanations at hand, the judge agreed with the prosecutor's recommendation that the court should prepare to place the children with court-appointed guardians. It was official. 
If Lydia lost her case, she would also lose her children. Lydia's fate seemed like it was sealed, but towards the end of the hearing, the judge offered her a tiny glimmer of hope. Since she was pregnant and her due date was only weeks away, the judge ordered a third-party observer to be present in the delivery room. Immediately after the baby was born, the observer would ensure the child was DNA tested to determine its maternity. The order struck Lydia's obstetrician and gynecologist, Dr. Dreisbach, as absurd. He had delivered Lydia's first two children and knew she was the mother. He felt the court system had become too reliant on DNA evidence in recent years. In his words, I've been doing this long enough to recognize when someone is giving birth right in front of you. He also pointed out that the footprints of newborns are taken in the delivery room. Prior to the advent of DNA technology, these footprints were used to reliably determine paternity. In Lydia's case, the footprints taken when she delivered her children matched them perfectly, but the court didn't want to hear it. As odd as it may sound, Lydia and her family were hoping the DNA results in the delivery room would come back negative. If the court observer watched her give birth and then a DNA test determined the baby couldn't be hers, her argument that the tests were flawed would suddenly seem a lot more credible. When the day finally came, Lydia couldn't stop jittering. It was stressful enough to deliver a baby, but to know that the future of her entire family depended on it was unbearable. In the end, all she could do was breathe. After a lengthy labor attended by the third-party observer, Lydia successfully delivered her third child. The observer watched as the baby's blood was taken almost as soon as it came out of the womb. The wait for the results over the next few days was excruciating. All Lydia could do was focus on her baby and pray for a break. Luckily, she got it. The lab reported that DNA tests showed there was no way the baby could be hers. Armed with this information, Lydia was finally able to get a lawyer to help her. Neither of them knew how to explain the faulty results, and no one involved with the case had ever heard of anything like this. But they both felt that the latest test proved there was something fishy about Lydia's DNA. Unfortunately, the prosecutors had another explanation. They now argued that Lydia had been secretly acting as a paid surrogate for another woman. They contended she must have been artificially inseminated with another woman's eggs. It made for a complicated setup to an alleged welfare scheme, but Lydia and her defense team had no other plausible explanation. Unless she could prove that their DNA came from her own eggs, her three children, including her newborn baby, would be ripped away. When we return, we'll see how Lydia searched desperately for scientific answers and finally reclaimed her children from the court. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, 
the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. In 2002, 26-year-old Lydia Fairchild was accused of committing welfare fraud. She had applied for public assistance in Washington state, but multiple DNA tests showed she could not be the mother of her own two children. A judge ordered a court-appointed observer to be in the delivery room while Lydia delivered her third child. After the DNA test once again came back negative, The prosecution accused Lydia of acting as a paid surrogate for another woman. Lydia knew it wasn't true, but had no other way of explaining the DNA results. No doctor she spoke to could offer her any explanations. Her lawyer began frantically digging through medical journals, searching for some kind of answer, but didn't have much luck. In a matter of weeks, Lydia would be expected to appear in court again unless she could convince the judge to doubt the very concept of DNA tests, it seemed likely she would lose custody of her children. But, as it turned out, Lydia and her lawyer were no longer the only ones who doubted the prosecution's case. After hearing Lydia's tearful protests during her interviews, the deputy prosecutor began to believe she was telling the truth. The prosecutor looked into the medical aspect of the case more thoroughly and happened to find an article in the New England Journal of Medicine which dealt with a condition known as chimerism. Chimerism is an extremely rare condition with less than 50 confirmed cases worldwide. People with the condition have two different sets of DNA in their bodies. Chimerism affects each individual differently, but in Lydia's case, it meant that most of her cells, like the blood which had been taken for the paternity test, featured DNA from a single genotype or genetic profile. But cells in her ovaries and uterus may have had an entirely different genotype. This meant that the eggs produced in her ovaries contained DNA that wasn't present in her bloodstream. When the eggs were fertilized, they developed into children with DNA corresponding to the second hidden genotype. So, the DNA in Lydia's blood and the DNA which largely determined her physical features did not match that of her children at all. There are a variety of potential causes for chimerism in humans and numerous physical effects that can occur as a result. Most often, chimerism isn't visible at all due to the predominance of one particular set of DNA. With the rarity of the condition, people are rarely tested for it, so some people live their entire lives without being aware that they are chimeras. In Lydia's case, she may have been affected by what is known as tetragametic chimerism. This condition occurs in the womb after two separate eggs are fertilized by two separate sperm, like in the case of non-identical twins. Together, these fertilized eggs, or zygotes, 
are comprised of four cells, two eggs and two sperm each. Hence the term tetra, meaning four. Both fertilized eggs begin dividing to create new cells. After approximately three days, each egg has divided enough to form two separate masses. Around one to two days after that, a cavity is formed inside the cell masses, creating a structure known as a blastocyst. In the case of tetragometic chimerism, the two masses of cells fuse together either before or during the blastocyst stage. This means that two separate zygotes with two different genetic arrangements combine to make a single blastocyst. If the zygotes do not fuse, the blastocysts develop separately into non-identical twins. Thus, in a sense, individuals with chimerism have the genetic qualities of two separate people. As in Lydia's case, these individuals can develop some organs composed of cells with one set of chromosomes and other organs with another set. Though Lydia's chimerism didn't present itself visually, in other cases, chimerism has resulted in visible characteristics. For example, some people with chimerism display two noticeably different skin pigmentations divided by an even line down the center of their bodies or even a checkerboard pattern. Unfortunately for Lydia Fairchild, her chimerism showed no visible indications. Because of this, specialists had no idea if she really was a chimera. Only extensive genetic testing could find the answer. That's exactly what the judge ordered. Lydia's lawyer contacted the medical team responsible for the article in the New England Journal, and they agreed to start testing Lydia to determine whether she was a chimera or not. The tests took months. First, the researchers took blood samples from Lydia to analyze her blood type. Because of their mixed DNA, some chimeras have multiple blood types, with each individual cell presenting a different type. The analysis proved to be a dead end. It seemed Lydia's red blood cells all shared the same typing. Unfortunately, time was of the essence. It would take months to test Lydia's skin, hair, and tissue from her internal organs if it all proved necessary. In the meantime, Lydia had another court date. Doctors had to find a different way to come up with evidence supporting the hypothesis that she was a chimera. The method they decided on was an interesting workaround. They took blood samples from both of Lydia's parents to see if they could find similarities in their DNA and that of their grandchildren. Lydia's parents were all too ready to provide the samples. They had worried from the beginning that the court would bar them from seeing their grandchildren if Lydia lost her case. Their blood tests came back with positive results. It was undeniable that they were biologically related to Lydia's children. This was exactly what Lydia's defense was looking for. Even if Lydia was a chimera, she had still inherited her parents' DNA. This meant that both the DNA in Lydia's blood and tissues and the second hidden genotype she'd passed on to her children would ultimately match Lydia's parents. 
at last, she had scientific evidence to prove the family line. She marched into court for her final date and presented it to the judge. He was stunned. By the end of the hearing, he ruled enthusiastically in Lydia's favor. She was indeed the mother of her three young children. After over a year of stress, heartbreak, and fear, Lydia's case had a happy ending. But for some, the results were more foreboding than comforting. After all, the fates of millions of people have been decided by DNA tests. Paternity suits are often thrown out because of DNA results, but the legal issues can go far deeper than that. For serious crimes, people have been released from life in prison or even death row based on a lack of DNA evidence. Though the documented cases of chimerism are few and far between, it begs the question, could a human chimera get away with murder because of a faulty forensic test? The thought is disturbing, and as of now, neither the legal system nor the medical community has a good answer. It perhaps becomes even more disturbing as we delve into the aftermath of Lydia's case and see just how difficult it is to prove whether someone is truly a chimera. With the test results from Lydia's parents, her defense was able to establish enough doubt for the judge to rule in her favor. But the medical lab still hadn't completely confirmed she was chimeric. As the months wore on, it started to look like they might never be able to. Tests of her hair and skin came back negative. These samples showed only one set of DNA, the same DNA that matched her cheek swabs and blood samples. But finally, doctors struck gold with a cervical smear. This sample, unlike the others, showed two sets of DNA. It seemed like Lydia finally had the answer she had been searching for. After all the tests, though, it was still impossible to estimate the full extent of Lydia's chimerism. It was probable that her ovaries included two sets of DNA, and it was possible that only her reproductive organs were affected. On the other hand, both sets of DNA could have also been hidden in her other internal organs. It was impossible to know for sure without systematically taking samples from every single part of her body. As that would have been impractical, the researchers were forced to settle for diagnosing Lydia as a chimera without knowing the full extent of her condition. She was one of only a few dozen confirmed cases in the entire world, but she wasn't the only one with a compelling story. Take Karen Keegan, for example. Karen's chimerism inspired the paper Lydia's deputy prosecutor found in the New England Journal of Medicine. Like Lydia, Karen discovered she was a chimera in the midst of a medical crisis. She suffered from kidney problems and was in need of a transplant. Karen's family, including two of her sons, had themselves tested to determine whether they were eligible to donate a kidney. The tests discovered Karen's sons were ineligible to donate a kidney to her and were, in fact, completely genetically distinct from her. Doctors were just as baffled as they had been upon seeing Lydia's results. But luckily for Karen, she faced no legal scrutiny. 
The results were written off as an anomaly, and Karen eventually received a transplant from someone else. Only one doctor, a physician named Dr. Lynn O, latched onto the data. She was mystified by the outcome of Karen's tests and convinced her to submit to more detailed analysis. Karen was interested in finding an answer, too. Her whole family underwent blood tests, including her youngest son, who had not been tested initially since he was too young to donate a kidney. The youngest son's DNA only deepened the mystery. His test determined that Karen was without a doubt his biological mother. This meant Karen had delivered three sons, only one of whom shared her DNA. As in Lydia's case, the breakthrough came by chance. Another physician consulted by the research team suggested that Karen may be a chimera. It was lucky that anyone involved in the case had heard of the phenomenon. But now that the doctors had a lead, it was just a matter of testing the hypothesis. They secured funding to perform an in-depth investigation and began the smorgasbord of tests that would be required for the experiment. As the same doctors would later do with Lydia, the research team first tested Karen's skin and hair. When these showed only one set of DNA, they had to move on. As it turned out, they found they could test Karen's internal organs without having to take new samples. Years before, Karen had surgery on her thyroid as well as on her bladder, and the hospital still had her tissues on file. With Karen's permission, doctors started the meticulous process of examining the organs for genetic irregularities. After months, they found what they were looking for. Karen's thyroid tissue showed cells with a second strand of DNA, distinct from her primary set. Even more promising was the fact that the DNA matched the genetic material found in her two elder sons. Though doctors had believed this result possible when they began the tests, they hadn't truly considered it likely. They were amazed by the findings. Karen was only one of dozens of people worldwide who could be classified as a chimera. Further testing revealed the second set of DNA was present in all of Karen's tissues, but was massively overshadowed by her primary set. It had been hard to pick out such a minority of cells before, but now that researchers knew what they were looking for, they were able to detect traces of the secondary genotype. Karen's case, like Lydia's, ended in triumph. Their chimerism did not affect their day-to-day -day lives and was only noticeable after careful scientific testing. But not everyone was so lucky. Some individuals with the condition faced discrimination and exclusion. And there is more than one type of chimerism. When we return, We'll examine the darker side of chimerism and how there may be many more chimeras than initially believed. And now, back to the story. Human chimerism is a rare condition which results in an individual possessing two separate sets of DNA. 
Affected people often show no physical signs, but chimerism can lead to visible changes, some of which impact their lives significantly. For example, if two fertilized eggs, one with male chromosomes and the other with female chromosomes, fuse in the womb, it can develop into a person with intersex characteristics. Conditions other than chimerism can give rise to the presence of intersex traits as well. And according to the Intersex Society of North America, intersex is a nebulous term with many definitions. However, it generally refers to a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical definitions of female or male. Intersex people face discriminatory treatment in everything from healthcare to employment. Intersex athletes have been banned from competition, and there is a stigma against the condition in many countries around the world. Intersex children are sometimes neglected or even abandoned by their parents. In the case of chimerism, diagnosis is difficult because not all who are affected display intersex characteristics. Sometimes, even those with both male and female DNA in their bodies develop according to the typical binary of male or female. Those who are intersex are among the most visible chimeras, however, and their lives are the most dramatically impacted by the condition. Living with these effects can be so difficult that few people are willing to publicly announce their status as intersex. Luckily, in recent years, there has been more of a push for intersex rights. Though the community is still marginalized, more countries around the world are starting to recognize the prejudice intersex people face. But as we said, not all people with chimerism are intersex. Chimeras face a diversity of issues, precisely because the phenomenon can express itself in so many different ways. In fact, there is another type of chimerism called microchimerism, which can affect the body in much more mysterious ways. While tetragametic chimerism causes large numbers of cells with a second genotype to develop, microchimerism results in the body containing only small numbers of these secondary cells. Unlike tetragametic chimerism, which occurs in the womb, microchimerism most commonly occurs in adult pregnant women. Fetal maternal microchimerism, as one phenomenon is known, takes place when cells from the fetus cross the placenta and enter the mother's body. These fetal cells can thrive in the mother for years. In 2012, a study by the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center found fetal cells in the brains of multiple women decades after they had given birth. Data suggests that this particular form of microchimerism is widespread. In fact, according to a study led by the University of Birmingham's Dr. Laurence Lubier, up to 75% of women who have given birth may harbor some fetal cells in their body. The full implications of this discovery are not yet known, but it could have worrisome consequences. A paper written by Dr. J. Lee Nelson suggests the presence of fetal cells in a mother could lead to a hostile immune reaction and possibly even autoimmune disease. 
Autoimmune diseases occur when the body's defenses react to stimuli in an abnormal way, sometimes harming the body by destroying otherwise healthy tissues. Lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and type 1 diabetes are all examples of common autoimmune diseases. These conditions are much more prevalent among women and are among the leading causes of death for women up to 65 years old. Some autoimmune diseases, like scleroderma, affect women up to five times more often than men. One possible explanation could be that fetal cells trigger a destructive immune reaction from the mother. This is similar to the response that occurs in a person's body after an organ or bone marrow transplant. After such a procedure, the immune system recognizes the transplanted tissue as foreign and may perceive it as a threat. White blood cells might then attack the foreign tissue, leading to what is known as graft-versus-host disease. As Dr. Nelson points out, these graft-versus-host diseases bear a striking resemblance to scleroderma. The reason this response occurs so frequently in women who have given birth may be due to microchimerism from their fetal DNA. Research is still ongoing and some findings are not so bleak. A few studies found evidence microchimerism could actually be beneficial to mothers. For example, among women with lupus, another autoimmune disease, the presence of male fetal cells has been correlated with a lower risk of kidney failure. If these results are due to microchimerism, it may be that fetal cells assist in repairing inflamed tissue and preventing organ failure. And in the case of breast cancer, women who gave birth more recently prior to their diagnosis have been shown to have a greater chance of recovery. Researchers believe fetal cells in the bloodstream could assist the body in fighting breast cancer in one of two ways. First, some data suggests that fetal cells are attracted to the cancerous cells and actively move into the tumor tissue. If this is the case, it's possible the fetal cells trigger an enhanced immune response against the tumor cells they're latching onto. A second possibility could be that microchimerism actively weakens the immune system. Though this might sound undesirable for a cancer patient, in the case of breast cancer, it can be a boon. A lowered inflammatory response, for example, may make the growth of a cancerous tumor less likely. For now, the exact mechanisms of microchimerism are not known, but further research will hopefully lead to advances in women's health. Something similar can be said of tetragametic chimerism. The condition is still little understood, but further research could have far-reaching implications. If chimeras are more common than previously believed, the very idea of DNA evidence in criminal proceedings may be suspect. Even if the condition is relatively rare, it can have a profound impact on a person's life. Lydia Fairchild almost lost her children because of it. It's clear we're a long way from truly solving the mysteries of chimerism, but the doctors who worked on Lydia's and Karen Keegan's cases have helped us take the first steps toward an answer. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries, 
For more information on human chimerism, amongst the varied sources we used, we found the documentary The Twin Inside Me extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, Tap Browse and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Terrell Wells and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.